gathered together this morning again, have the Word of God in our hands, and especially as we are endeavoring to uh, uh, traverse through the book of Acts, which is, of course, the inspired church history. It's the only one that we have, and this morning our text, again, is just so relevant and needful for us, even today as a local church, and the title of our message is, Paul took Timotheus and circumcised him because of the Jews. Now, brethren, you remember when we were last together here in the book of Acts, Paul and Silas had just arrived in Derby and Lystra. And it was here, as you remember, last time we were together, which was a couple weeks ago, because you got a uh, Brother Howard preach last week, but a couple weeks ago, you remember that we were briefly introduced to Timotheus, just briefly there in our text, who, according to verse number one, is indeed and already a member of the Lord's church. Verse number one tells us here that he is a disciple. You're not a disciple unless you are a follower of Christ. And so that uh, Paul or uh, uh, Luke gives us that information. Now, the Holy Ghost, and again, brothers, it's always the working of the Holy Ghost that's working through all of these things as we are going through this uh, most glorious text together. By his divine introduction of Paul to Timothy, it gives rise to one of the closest Christian kinships recorded in all of sacred scripture. It is an amazing thing when you study out here the relationship that Paul and Timothy had even unto the very end of Paul's days. It is a most stunning thing to consider. You remember that Paul said of him in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord. And so there was this spiritual father and son kind of relationship. As you remember, Paul never had any children. And Timothy, as we're going to see here in our text, Timothy's father had passed on. And so we see Paul and Timothy, this most amazing kinship that, that the Spirit of God brings together. There, In fact, just to lay the groundwork, Timothy was with Paul in Corinth. We understand that. Amen. He was sent to Macedonia, which we're going to see, and he accompanied the apostle on his return trip to Jerusalem. In fact, if you look at Scripture, Timothy is associated with Paul in the writing of Romans. Think of this, brethren, for just a moment as he is there in that kinship and the Spirit of God has brought them together. 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians. Think of that, brethren, for just a moment. First and 2 Thessalonians, amen, and Philemon. It's a stunning thing as Paul is writing these letters. Timothy, who the Spirit of God has brought together here in our text, is there the whole time being a faithful worker. He served Paul in Corinth, in Thessalonica, in Ephesus. Think of this, brethren, when you consider that, and also in Philippi. Now, this, of course, is a glorious truth again here, the Spirit of God, uh, because Barnabas has left with John Mark. The Holy Ghost gives unto Paul a faithful man. And it's always, you look in Scripture, you see that it's always two by two, three by three, never one by one. But we see here again the, the Holy Spirit's faithful guiding in that, that he would give such a faithful man unto Paul, again, as I said, unto the very end of his days. It's an amazing thing. And so as we take up our text this morning, we see in verses 1 and 2 there, the Holy Spirit of God reveals for us some interesting information. I want us to read that together. Look at verses 1 and 2, uh, Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Then came he to Derbe and to Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus. Again, we looked at that last time we were together. But this is what's important. A son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek. 
And so, interestingly here enough, the Holy Spirit doesn't just introduce us here to Timotheus, but he also introduces us to his parents, which I think is really an important thing when you look there, especially the impact, the influence that he had. His mother, Luke writes, is a faithful Jewish woman who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul also affirms this glorious truth, again, as he is carried along by the Holy Ghost. And I want you to see this again. Parents, this morning, wouldn't it be a glorious thing to have written of yourself all through eternity that which is written of, of, of Eunice, that which is written of his, his, his grandmother, Timothy's grandmother. And I want you to see this this morning again, the impact that they had upon young Timothy. Look in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. I want you to see this. And I want you to see the description that Paul gives concerning the faith, not only of Timothy, but the influence in the, in the description of the faith that Timothy's mother and grandmother passed on down to him. And I want you to see this as we read this together again. Second Timothy, look there if you would. Look at verse, uh, chapter 1. Look at verse number 2. Look there what the Bible says. And again, we see Paul's endearment to Timothy, this relationship that the Holy Ghost had brought together. Look at that. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son. And again, we see these terms of endearment over and over again. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with a pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Look at verse 4. Greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. Now, Paul's remembering, he's thinking back, he's writing this, and we see remembering and bringing to mind. He's thinking about Timothy and the impact that his parents, uh, particularly his mother and grandmother, look at verse 5. When I call to remember, it's the unfeigned faith. That's a very important word there that's used concerning that faith. It means it's not counterfeit. It means that which is not hypocritical, that which is genuine and not an act. Literally, that's what it means. Paul's bringing to his remembrance this truly godly spirit, and, uh, if you will, designed faith that he sees in his mother, in the mother and grandmother, look, or in Timothy. But then he says this, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that is in thee also. And again, Paul is saying here, as he wrote here again in the book of Acts concerning Timothy and his parents, Paul is literally saying that the unfeigned faith that he saw in Timothy, listen, brethren, and again, this is what, <laughs> I could take us back to the 90s. Remember when Bill Clinton was in office? Remember what he'd say? That's my personal life, and this is my what? This is my private life. He tried to separate the two. Well, one thing is for sure, brethren, here, this word, this, this teaching on unfeigned faith, there is no separation. What Paul is saying here is that there is what? That this faith that he sees in his, in his grandmother and mother and that he sees in Timothy took up permanent residence in them. That they were always there, always working, always part of their lives. So when we leave the fellowship on Sunday mornings or Sunday afternoons or whenever we're here and you go to work tomorrow, we ask ourselves, is that unfeigned faith? Is that which people see in us? Is it the same today as it will be tomorrow? You can't say that's my private life and this is my personal life and all that. Never ever in scripture do you ever see that. It's certainly not here. Paul says, no, that faith, Timothy, that I see in you, that's being regenerated by the spirit of God. As I see it in you, I see it in everything you do. And this is really quite an amazing thing when you consider that. 
as you look at that. Look at here, these godly role models. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're right there again. Paul is bringing to remembrance this influence that these glory, his mother and grandmother, had on him as a young, from his childhood brethren. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? We start teaching our children, and we've not to, I'm just not, I'm just saying it. This is one of the verses that we have memorized in our home because of the importance, again, of the word of God. It's the importance of what the word of God is doing in their lives and in their hearts. Amen? Look there, if you would, at verse 14. The Bible says, Paul writes here again, well, the second letter that bears Timothy's name. He says, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Well, who taught him? It was his mother and grandmother. That's who taught him. The Spirit of God, of course, uses what was taught, but that's who taught him. He's taking him back again to that, that foundation that the parents, that the mother and grandmother laid for him. Look at what it says. And that from a child, again, his parents started very young. The mother and grandmother started very young, very, very young in the home. Teaching what? Teaching the scriptures. Look here, brother, and there as it continues. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. Well, what were they? They weren't the New Testament, brother. When he was a child, it wasn't the New Testament that was taking place. She was, they were teaching the Old Testament powerful word of God. It's amazing, isn't it? Look at what it says. Which are able to make thee wise, what? Unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16. And we know this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be what? May be perfect. May be thoroughly, may, may, may be thoroughly trained and furnished unto all good works. In fact, again... We see this as we look at our text this morning, this influence. Because even not only did Paul see it, not only did he see that influence of grandma and mom and the teaching of Holy Writ on them, but look who else sees it. Again, brother, look back at Acts chapter 16. Look there, if you will, again. Timothy, and again, I pray us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, when you are out working, when you're, whether, whatever your job is, one thing the people you're working with, brethren, should never have to question is whether you are a believer. If you've been there for any period of time at all, they better look at you and go, that man, that woman, or that young child, that young kid is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, again, this is what emanated from Timothy. This is what Paul saw. This is what he saw, again, in his mother and grandmother that was passed on to him. Look at uh, Acts chapter 16. Look at verse number 2. There was not a question as to whether or not Timothy was a believer. Again, as, as it was stated there, look at Acts chapter 16, look at verse number 2, look what the Bible says of him. And again, brother, wouldn't that be nice to have it said of us with those who we are around, those who we work with, those whom we are brothers and sisters, shall we say, if we will, making an impression on. Look at verse 2. Speaking of Timothy and the women, the Jewish, who became a believer Look at the first three words. Well, verse 4. Which was, well, what? Reported by the brethren. Again, this idea, this Christian man, Timothy, this young disciple, had been living out his life, and people who were around him saw that. And again, this is what is recorded in Scripture concerning him. Timothy, a disciple, one whom the world saw as a man of God, who lived consistently and constantly in that form of lifestyle. 
Timothy indeed was blessed. He enjoyed, which many of us in this room, some of us have, he enjoyed what some of us have, while the second generation in my family, and I know you look around at some of the families, we know that their parents were Christians, but mine weren't. So I grew up not with this blessing of having parents who had a godly influence upon us. And now my children are growing up in a Christian home, and it's kind of a weird thing as we look at it, because it appears to me, and not, again, just as I look at things sometimes, I'm, I'm weird. I analyze people, I look at people, I look at situations, I see. And it appears to me that for some reason, sometimes the second generation of Christians, that salvation isn't as valuable. It doesn't bring as much persuasion with it, understanding what God has saved you from. Not here, brethren. It is a generational thing. They understand. This is an amazing, stunning thing that Paul was certainly right. And, of course, Luke concerning. He enjoyed a godly heritage. His grandmother and mother faithfully taught him the holy scriptures from his very early childhood. What an amazing thing to be written for all of eternity about concerning you or I. Now look at verse number 3. Verse number 3 there of Acts chapter 16. So we're introduced to his parents. We're introduced to Timothy. What the scripture says concerning the kind of believer and disciple Timothy was. And now this takes place. Look at verse number 3. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters. For they knew all that his father was a Greek. Now, that's the second time our text has said that. His father was a Greek. You notice how Luke brings that out. That's an important point for us to take note of there in our text. Now, because Timothy's father was a Greek, and because in those days, which it should be today, I know, okay, I'm old-fashioned, right? The father had authority over the household, okay? Even, t- even his father as a Greek had authority over the household, and he would not allow Timothy to be circumcised. Isn't it interesting when you take note there that he allowed the mom to, and, and grandmother to teach the scripture, but he would not allow him to be circumcised, which is quite amazing. Luke informs us here that the Jews knew that Timothy was indeed born of a mixed marriage. I mean, again, it's said twice. He's a Greek. His father's a Greek. His mother was a Jewish, but his father's a Greek. His father's a Greek. And that, Luke brings that out by the Spirit of God. They knew he was born of a mixed marriage and that he was not circumcised. Therefore, the Jews whom they are going to preach to would consider Timothy if you will, an apostate Jew. See, his mother, because of the mother's lineage, he was considered a Jew, but he was an apostate Jew because he was uncircumcised because of his Greek father. So Paul submits Timothy to the Jewish ordinance of circumcision. And again, didn't we just finish chapter 15? If it was Wednesday evening or Sunday morning, I'd ask you, what's chapter 15 all about? Chapter 15 is all about the Jerusalem Council and how we can't add circumcision to salvation. But yet Timothy, or Paul here takes Timothy and has him circumcised. It's an amazing thing. Brethren, this, of course, is all within the bounds of Holy Scripture because it's not a salvific matter. This is all the difference, brethren. This is the difference between where we're going to go look and see where Paul refused to let Titus be circumcised, but he takes Timothy and allows him to be circumcised. Why? Because as we look there in Galatia, what were they doing? They were tying circumcision to what? To salvation, just like they were in Acts chapter 15, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, when Paul stood up and wanted to fight. 
Here he just goes, all right, I'm going to submit Timothy to the ordinance of circumcision. And there's a glorious, godly reason. He would never do that, brethren, of course, as we know. That would be a denial of the sufficiency of Christ's work. We understand that, right? Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Let me show you this. This is Titus. He takes Titus and he says, not on your life. I'm not going to allow Titus to be circumcised, period. Again, why? Because, again, they are making it salvific. They are taking it and turning it into, in in theological terms, sacerdotalism, which means, again, just like when we baptize somebody here, right? There are people who teach that you're not saved until you go down into that baptistry and the water washes away your sins. People teach that. That is sacerdotalism. That is making something that is a type Having that make turning it into something that has salvific powers of some sort. That's the difference here. Timothy's going to be circumcised so that Paul and he, as they're preaching in the Jewish synagogues, which they're ready to leave on their second missionary journey, and we're going to look at this, so that the Jews aren't sitting there as Paul is preaching and thinking to themselves, that Timothy, he's an apostate. He's an apostate Jew. That's what he is. Paul is simply going to remove that all from their thought all from their understanding, all from their thinking. And there's two things actually that are taking place here that the Spirit of God knows is going to happen down the road. But particularly here, he's, he's circumcising Timothy, not because it's salvific. Look at here Galatians chapter 2 again. Let's just read that again. He refuses to allow Tim, or Titus to be circumcised. Why? Because they're tying it together. In fact, he mentions here that the gospel's at stake. And remember what we said, brethren, anytime the gospel's at stake, Paul would fight to the bitter end, and we should too. When the gospel's at stake, we should fight to the bitter end. Look here, Titus or Galatians chapter 2, look at verse number 3. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, there it is again, see? That's the idea. He's an uncircumcised man. He's a Greek. The Bible says, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into what? Into bondage. There it is again. You've been set free by Christ, and here they're trying to draw them back in. But look what he says. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel, you see that there again, they were tying it to salvation. They were saying, well, in order to be saved, you believe in Christ, and then we, gotta, we have to cut off your foreskin. Of course, we understand, don't we, that it's always about the heart. Even in the Old Testament, when you go look how God speaks of circumcision, that physical thing was always a type and a picture of what is supposed to happen in the heart, always. They turned it, what, into a physical thing that I can prove I'm a saved man or I'm a godly man because I've been circumcised. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Brethren, again, as I said, Paul, not for a second, not for a minute, would he allow that to be tied into the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, because again, what? That would what? That would take away, and that would certainly uh, mar the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ in one salvation experience uh, and happening. Amen? as we see that in Scripture. Again, Timothy's case is entirely different. Paul, as we know, will be preaching in many of the Jewish synagogues with Timothy right at his side. And as I said, brethren, he knows that the Jews will not look favorably upon him as he's sitting there who is regarded as an apostate sitting in their midst. 
Now, again, as I said, it isn't just this that the Holy Spirit of God is heading off. This is really important, brother. And again, this is not just this situation. It is something that takes place further on down the road in the book of Acts. The Spirit of God knows all things. He is in control of all things, and he knows that soon, Paul, they will be there preaching, and this will come up. And so let's take a look at this together, brethren. The Holy Spirit heads off the later criticism of Paul, the accusation that the Holy Ghost knows will come. Look at Acts chapter 21. Just move ahead there just a little bit. Again, here he's doing it so that Timothy, as he's alongside of him, will, they'll, he'll be preaching the gospel. They'll be thinking not about Timothy, but about what Paul is preaching. Look at Acts chapter 21. And again, brethren, this is really important for us to understand. When you look throughout Scripture, and especially here in the book of Acts, you will clearly notice that the Apostle Paul, brethren, never, ever, one time, not one time, does he ever, shall we say, when it's not salvifically tied, does he ever flout or does he ever ask the Jewish Christian to not observe some of the ordinances and laws? In fact, the opposite is actually true. Paul himself actually walked, as we're going to look here, Paul himself actually observed many of the Jewish ordinances even after becoming a Christian. And we see this in the book of Acts all through it. It's an amazing thing. The day of Pentecost was first mentioned in Acts chapter 2, but we're going to see some feasts. Paul himself is keeping the feast, but again, not only did he keep a feast, but he kept a vow. In fact, he kept a vow here in our text, and I want you to see this. Again, this is not salvific. This, again, is something that the Lord used to head off some of the accusations against Paul, and I want you to see this here again. It's very important. Look at Acts chapter 21. Look at verse number 20. Look what the Bible says. And when they had heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews that there, were, that there are which believe, and they are zealous for the law. So again, they're looking around saying, look what the Lord's doing. Paul's preaching, and there's thousands of Jews that are being saved who are zealous for the what? For the law. Look what he's told to do. Look what Paul participates in. Not as a salvific thing, but as something, an ordinance of the Jews to give audience. Look there if you would. Here's what the Spirit of God really is heading off. Verse 21. And they are informed. That word literally means catechize. That's one of the seven times in Scripture it's used. They are informed of thee, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to what? Circumcise their children. Paul never said that. In fact, we see here, Paul takes one of his spiritual children, and he, and he what? Circumcises them. Not again for salvation, but for an audience with the Jews as he's preaching. Look what it says there. Uh, they, ought to circumcise, they ought not circumcise their children, neither walk in the, in the customs. Paul never says that, brethren, not once. Not one time. The only time he ever says it or indicates that is when they are tying it to salvation. That's the only time. In fact, when you consider it, think of this for a moment. We were talking a little bit about this this morning. Romans, is that in the New Testament? Is the book of Romans in the New Testament? Yeah, yes, it is. It absolutely is. It's there. Guess what Paul does in the book of Romans in chapters 1 and 2? Guess what he does there? You know what he includes? Nine of the Ten Commandments. 
You understand that? Thou shall not kill. Thou shall not. These things, right? He's bringing that in because it's good for our society to follow the law of God concerning these things, brother. And amen. He never dogs it. He never says it isn't good. He says it's what? The law is good. If it's used what? Lawfully. That's what he's doing here. He's using the ceremony. He's using the ordinances of the Jewish people to gain audience and to get audience with the Jews. Look what happens. He said, I never, Paul never said that. He never said not to circumcise your children, not once. Look what it says, verse, 30, or verse 22. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. What vow? I mean, if I asked you what vow, you'd know it. It's a Nazarene vow, which comes from Leviticus. That's the Old Testament. And he just says, Paul, will you do this for us? Not as a salvific matter, but as a matter of, if you will, gaining audience. Look what he does. We have, which have a vow on them. Look what it says. Them taken, purify thyself with them. Follow the vow. Follow the Nazarene vow, Paul. Why? Because you're going to be saved by it? No, because you're going to have audience with them who will criticize you for saying, we shouldn't circumcise, we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do that. Paul never said that. The only time he ever said it again is when they were tying it, making it salvific. Sacerdotalism, making the water as if it can remove sins. It's insanity. Look what it says. Take them and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads and all, <clears throat> and all may know that those things whereof they are informed or catechized concerning thee are nothing. <laughs> you see that there? There's a reason why they want him to do it. They're accusing him of this and they say, hey, Paul, just do this and it's nothing. It's a false accusation. But thou, that thou keepest thyself also, walkest orderly, and keepest what? The law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded. Again, he's now going back where? To the Jerusalem Council. He's heading back there. He's going back and saying, remember, we talked about this. We wrote about this. We've delivered this to the churches. Look what he says. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. Look at verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple, signifying the accomplishment of the days of purification, until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. Do you see that there, brother? And Paul is submitting to that. Not because it's salvific, but because these, these uh, what we call them, vain janglers, amen, are going to bring accusation against him. And the Holy Spirit knows that. The Holy Spirit says, just take Timothy, circumcise him. Hey, Paul, by the way, just go ahead and do this, and that will remove all of their accusations. What the text said, it, right? It's nothing, Paul. It says nothing. It's amazing, isn't it, when you consider that? It's a stunning thing. By circumcising Timothy, Paul is showing that he is not, again, flouting the Jewish customs. He does the same thing in his own observances. In fact, look at Acts chapter 20, verse 6, brethren. Again, this doesn't go away. This goes clear on into some of his epistles. Look at Acts chapter 20. Look what's mentioned. Look what is brought to the forefront. What is Paul doing in Acts chapter 20? Look at verse number 6. Look there if you would, brethren. Look what the Bible says. 
And we, uh, by the way, incidentally, this is the first mention of Luke. He's been writing along, but he starts using we here in chapter 20. And we sailed away from Philippi after what? The days of unleavened bread. There it is again. There's a Jewish, if you will, uh, a Jewish uh, feast, a Jewish time that they were keeping. Paul sat. He stayed there. And after the day of unleavened bread, he sails, he says. So Paul clearly is still um, participating and, and, if you will, watching over some of these things. And then, of course, verse 7, uh, the Bible says, And came to them, unto them to Troas in five days, and we abode seven days. So he stayed there until after the days of unleavened bread. Look at verse 16. Not only the days of unleavened bread, but look at verse number 16. Again, showing, brethren, again, that this stuff is very important and very powerful as long as you are not tying it to salvation. Look at verse 16. For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend time, that time in Asia. For he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem when? The day of Pentecost. So there it is again. These ordinances, these holidays, these feasts are constantly going and, and coming in and out of the book of Acts. Look at one more. Look at Acts chapter 27. This is a big one. Acts chapter 27. Do you realize that in Scripture there was only one fast or one day? that God commanded in the Old Testament that they were to fast in celebration of. Anybody know what that day was? I'm sure you could utter it out loud. Look here in Acts chapter 27. Again, Paul, again, all around these Jewish ordinances and these Jewish feasts, all for the glory of God and for the Holy Spirits of God's work as he lays groundwork for audience. Look at Acts 27. Look at verse number 9. Now when much time was spent... And when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already past, Paul astonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be uh, with hurt and much damage, not only of the landing and ship, but also of our lives. Again, the fast that is being mentioned here that Paul waited is the Day of Atonement. It's the only day, the feast in the Old Testament, where God demands a day of fasting. So here's Paul, again, just simply Following along, not for salvific reasons, but Paul continues in these feasts, in these things, as God gains him, at, uh, if you will, audience in front of those Jews who were waiting to criticize. That's why he took Timothy and circumcised him. No more. It shuts their mouths. It's nothing, Paul. Do this because it's nothing. They will have nothing to say, except they'll have to listen and hear what is being preached. In fact... Look at one more text. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Takes us right into the New Testament, into the church age. Look what Paul says. A very familiar portion of Scripture. He's simply, he's simply imitating and doing what Paul said he was going to do right here. This is a biblical thing. Now, brethren, before the church growth people get all wild and say, Oh, Paul became all things to everyone and he's going to win as many as possible. No, brethren, that's not what this means. He stayed within the confines of Holy Scripture. He stayed within the confines of God's direction. I don't think I ever saw a canon in here. I don't think I ever saw, a, if you will, one of these weird little, shall we say, altar calls in here. Not once. Never. He stayed within the confines of Scripture. This is what he did. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look what the Bible says there in verse 19. For though I be free from all men, 
Yet have I made myself a servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Look at what he says. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law is under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law is without law, being not without law to God, but under the law of Christ. He makes sure and bring that in, right? We're all under the law of Christ. That's what he's saying. The law of God's gone nowhere. The civil law of God has gone nowhere. Wouldn't it be great, brethren? Let's go ahead and start posting that back up again in the schools. We talked about it this morning. I mean, this stuff is amazing. You drive by and there's a police car sitting outside of a grade school. We've lost our minds, brethren. We've lost it completely and totally. And instead of going, yeah, we should repent, let us go back to the old paths that, you know, God kept calling the nation of Israel to, that we might what? That we might live. Instead of doing that, it is just full bore. I wish I could show it on the... Full bore, pedal to the metal, on the way to the abyss of hell itself. It's amazing. Stunning. What men will do. But here, again, we see this Paul. Look what he does. Look what he says. He says to verse 21, To them that are without the laws, without the law, being not without the law to God, but rather the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men. Listen, that I might by all means save some. Why did he do it? Did he do it so it would save him? Did he do it so that he would have some merit before God? No. Look what it says. He did it for the what? The gospel's sake. This is what's happening. This is why Paul takes little Timothy here and just says, Hey, brother, come on up here. We're going to go ahead and circumcise you. So that those naysayers, those who are trying to doom the Christian faith, which they could never in the first place, will have nothing to say. It's okay. I, I, I learned something, brothers. Not to sidetrack, Brother Keith, but just a moment here. I learned something. I've always been a fire and brimstone street preacher. Anybody who's ever been with me realizes that I scream a lot. I say some things a lot. Amen? But I learned something the last time we were out, and it was interesting. Not that we became like they are, but we started having conversations. You know what? It all settled down. Amazing. Let's have a conversation. Let's make that nothing. Amazing, isn't it? Although there are times, and I'll never change, where it needs to be preached hard and fast. That's why it's a good balance. That's why we got some guys that are they're balanced. Mike's hard and fast. We got some calm people, Brother Keith and some of these guys. They just come alongside and just calm it down. But it gained you audience, didn't it, brother? It did. This is what Paul is saying. It's not salvation, Timothy. It's not salvation, you Jews that are there. The Bible says because of the Jews. It's not salvation. It's because God is going to give him glorious, uh, if you will, audience with them. It's an amazing thing to see. It's a great thing for us to practice. Not church growth, not Rick Warren, not old canary swallowing Joel Osteen. Biblical stuff. Bible-believing stuff. Looking and saying, Lord, how would you have me to respond to this? How should we respond? This is what Paul is saying. This is precisely what he's doing. 
Paul never, let me say this again, derided his Jewish heritage, nor demanded ever that Jewish Christians renounce theirs. He didn't. He simply and consistently preached to everyone, listen, that the Jewish ordinances and the Jewish law could never function as a means of salvation. This is what he's doing. This is what he's preached. This is what he's done. You can do some things, brethren, and not be castigated by God for it. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Good, sound, biblical teaching. Good stuff for us to learn by, for sure. Look back there now at Acts chapter 16. Look there, if you would, at verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. We're going to tie these together because there's such an important, again, thing that the Holy Spirit of God is going to teach us. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Again, this is just what they did. Remember what we said at Jerusalem? We're sending that out. It's biblical. We want to make sure that all the churches are doing that exact same thing. Mimic me. Mimic what we're doing. They established the churches, the Bible says there. Now listen. The Bible says there in verse uh, 6. Now when they had gone through out Phrygia in the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. That's a stunning thing, brother, when you read a text like that. That will get a hold of you real quickly. They were forbidden by the Holy Ghost to preach the word. Stunning. You want to talk about the sovereignty of God? You want to talk about God, the Holy Spirit, directing where the preaching is going to go? Paul's first choice is to preach there. The Holy Spirit says, nope, not today. Look at his second choice. Look what this text, it just reveals so much. That's why we believe in the word of God. This is why we believe that God will do his bidding and his work. You don't need the pastor to do cartwheels and slide in on a, one of these rail things or whatever that is. None of that. The spirit of God is in control of all of it. And I always say, isn't that a glorious respite? Those who preach, it's a, it's a glorious respite to know that you can simply say what it says and not have to hinder it, not to try and trick somebody, not to try and soften it, because you are interfering with what the Spirit of God is doing when you do that. Paul says, I'm going to go here and preach. The Holy Spirit says, no, you're not. That's Paul's first choice. Look at his second choice. Look at the text. Look what it says there. Now, verse 6, I'm going to read it again. Now, when they had gone through uh, Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. And after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia. So instead of, you know, instead of going here, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go over here and preach the word. Look what the text says. Again, the sovereignty of God directing his people, sending them exactly where they need to go. Look what it says. But the Spirit suffered them not. Paul's first inclination was to go to, if you will, to head up there as, we, as the text says, right? They're going to go through Asia and preach the word. The Spirit says, no, 
Then they're going to go, what, to Mysia, that they essayed to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit says, no. See, Paul's first choice, the Spirit rejected. His second choice, the Spirit rejected. You know why? Because of what follows in verses uh, 8, 9, and 10. That's why I asked Brother Dean, because I was going to cut it off there, but you really can't. You've got to see the direction of the Spirit of God working. He stops them from preaching here. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying that we see down the road quite a ways that they do end up going back, don't they? They do end up preaching here where the Spirit is preventing them from going and preaching the gospel. They do go back there. Many churches are established there, but not now. So the question becomes then, what about those who died because the Spirit didn't allow them to go preach the gospel so they could be saved? What about them? Well, again, that's God in his sovereign work doing what he does. It's amazing, brethren. Trust in God. Trust in the Spirit of God. Trust in what he's doing. Paul could have just ignored him and said, oh, the Spirit, uh, the Spirit would never let that happen. But just think, Paul could have ignored him and went, instead of going where the Spirit chose for him to go. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. That's where the Spirit wants him to go, not where Paul wants to go. Look at here. And they passing by Mysia came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and praying, uh, praying him said, Come over unto Macedonia and help us. So Paul, again, brothers, this is a glorious thing. See, it's the Spirit of God working. I'm going to go here. I want to go here. No, the Spirit of God says, no. You're not going there and there. You're going to go here. And you're going to know that it is the Spirit of God because I'm going to send a vision, which they had plenty of when the church was being formed and it was being placed and the Word of God was being written and put together. They had a lot of those. But it assured, brother. Paul goes, well, look what the text is. I don't even need I'll just read it. Look what it says. And they, verse 8, passing by Mysia, came, on to, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after that he had seen the vision. Immediately we endeavored to go into where? Macedonia. That's the Spirit's choice. The first two were not. This is the Spirit's choice. Look what it says. Assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us. <laughs> That's what you always want to be, brother, and you want to make sure that the gall of God is on your heart when you're doing these things, and, and he's directing you. Look what it says. Assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Again, brethren, we see in our text the Spirit of God who is intervening. He is saying, no, Paul, you're not going there, and you're not going there. You're going over here, and you're going to preach what? the gospel to them. That's what this was all about. Paul was concerned about preaching the gospel. What does the gospel do? The gospel saves. The power of the gospel saves. The Spirit of God told him, you just go right on over here. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? The Spirit, the Holy Ghost, makes it clear here, brethren, that Paul's work is indeed directed by God himself to achieve his glorious purposes and ends. Brothers and sisters, I want to be in the will of God. I want to be where God wants me to be. Amen? And you should too. This is what this text is all about. It's about the sovereignty of God and Him placing you exactly where He wants you and will use you. It's a stunning thing when you think about that for just a moment. Paul 
did not set out to go to Troas. It was, as I said, the last, the third choice for him. But it was the Holy Ghost placing him perfectly in place. Can I say that again? The Holy Ghost put him perfectly in place. It's interesting as we close with a most relevant practical point this morning. There's many here, but one I want to bring out to you for us to all consider this morning. First of all, you realize that David Livingston wanted to go to China. You realize that? That that's where he wanted to go. Where did God send him? Right? He sent him to Africa. He wanted to go to China, but God sent him to Africa. And look what happened, brothers, sisters. Stunning. William Carey wanted to go to uh, Polynesia, but God sent him where? To India. Look what happened. Amazing, stunning evangelism and salvation that took place through their preaching. At Norium Judson went to India. God guided him where? To Burma. Amazing. Just, it just shows you how this text is so needful for us today and so relevant for us and so practical. God will, brothers and sisters. He will place you in the perfect place. You submit to his will. Submit to what he is doing, not you. And this is what happens to men. We get ourselves in trouble because we are not submitting to him. We're submitting to what we want. The Holy Ghost says, no, no, Paul. Nope, not today, not tomorrow. Maybe in just a little while, which he does. But immediately, not now. You're going down here to Macedonia to preach the gospel to them. Where they and many will be saved. Amen? God's glorious work never stops. It never ends. It keeps going and going and going. And even today, brethren, even today, God will put you in the perfect place. Let's pray. Father, we, we know this morning that this text is chocked full of glorious truths. And there are many here that I I'm sure I leaned over. But Lord, we believe in the power of the word. The word fitly spoken. The word rightly divided and handled. And Father, we trust in you. We trust in what you're doing. We pray that we will be as Paul was. And again, I'm not trying to insert us into the text, but there's a principle here. May we be ever sensitive to what you would have us to do. And we know that you are sovereign. You will place us there in that place. That's kind of a weird. It, when you think about it, he placed him in that place. And we are no different. God, you haven't changed. You are still sovereign king over all. And we work where we work because you have placed us there. We live as we're going to see later on in Acts, we live because, Lord, you ordained us to live here, right here in this place, Bismarck, North Dakota. And, Father, may we be ever aware of the work that you're going and using us and going to do through us. If we simply just cleave on to the word of God, allow, and I hate to use this terminology, but we're obstinate people. We're stiff-necked sometimes. 
Just like God said the Jews were, you stiff-necked people. Father, that we would remain and be more sensitive. Can I use that word, brothers? It's not going to offend the liberals like that. To, to be more sensitive to the leading of God. And if we're not more sensitive, <laughs> there's this thing God does. He grabs you by the scruff of the neck. He'll put you right where you're supposed to be. Yep, that's a fact. As we're going to see, they drew Paul when they tried to kill They drew him out. That word draw there is an astounding word. You will indeed grab us by the scruff of the neck and put us in the place that you would have us to be. And Father, we again thank you for your grace this morning. We thank you for the truths that have been uh, gleaned from this scripture. And again, I would encourage the brethren to go and read this portion of scripture, to study it out and to have the Spirit of God sink it deep down into our ears. Father, we, we love you and we thank you again, as Dean prayed earlier, for the word of God. That's what you, that which you would have us to have, that which is powerful, sharper than a double-edged sword, that which goes into the place that men can never go, that men can never see, that is the heart, the inner man, the very kidneys, the entrails of the human heart. Father, we thank you for that. Thank you for, as we're standing here this, this morning, really resting if you will, on the shoulders of what you did nearly 2,000 years ago. Stunning. And the Spirit of God marches on, his work marches on, and it will accomplish that for which he intended it to do. And Father, now as we gather around the Lord's table, we thank you for, again, the reminder of your loving kindness to us that you would not leave us here as orphans, that you would think upon us, that you would take our place if we're saved this morning, if we've trusted in Christ, that you would be our substitute. And Father, you would take our sin and we would be given by the Father, through the priesthood of the Father, we would be imputed with your righteous works. Father, we love you now and pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That name that is above every name, that holy name, the, the hallowed name, that which is sanctified and set apart for holy work. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen.